Oh, okay, it's recording. Haha. <laughs> Should I say I'm a master? Like, what? Wait, wait, wait a minute. <sighs> I'm trying to think of what to say. <laughs> Cut that part out. <laughs> What's up, everybody? This is Ben Ma from Kansas State University. I'm a food science graduate student. And today here, I'm with Amanda Sia. Hi, <laughs> this is Amanda Sia. I'm also a graduate food science student at the Ohio State University. Amanda and I both are food science students, and uh, just this week, Amanda sent me a link via uh, Facebook Messenger. That's like ninety percent of our communications happening. She sent me this link to journal called uh, Journal of Articles in Support of the Null Hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's basically a journal that publishes articles that are basically fail the p test. Yeah. So I feel like that's a trend nowadays, and people are becoming more aware of um, all of these insignificant results that come out from academic research, right? There's even the Journal of Negative Results for Ecology and what, Evolutionary Biology. Oh, is that true? There, that's a thing. I didn't know it was a thing until today, but it's a thing. So that kind of got us thinking, okay. and we wanted to talk a little bit about p-hacking and p-value and, you know, negative results in the context of academic research and even beyond. Oh, yeah. So basically... P-value, uh, for those who are not familiar with P-value, I just think it's a risk management factor or risk assessment factor of how, how, much of, how much of a confidence I have in my conclusion. Okay, I think it's P-value is the probability you would observe the results you're seeing are more extreme given that your null hypothesis is true. So it has to tie in back to the null hypothesis somehow. Okay. Uh, so, well, I mean, Wikipedia will probably give you a pretty good or semi-decent explanation of p-value. So just go read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's just, a lot of people just use it for um, support their hypothesis. Right. But for people who don't know, in academic research, typically people look at p-value to see if their um, results are significant enough. So if someone says, oh, um, I don't know, aloe vera prevents hair loss or decreases hair loss. So they have to prove it. And then to prove it, you know, they collect results, blah, blah, blah. They do statistical analyses. And then if the p-value falls below a certain threshold, then they would claim that result to be significant. I guess, like, it's kind of weird how a p-value of 0 0.05 came about. Like, whoever decided one day, like, oh, let's just make it 0 0.05 like hey you know who decided who i think it's tukey oh is it or tukey? fisher i i won't be surprised one of the two yeah huh. either tukey or fisher we're not statistic majors or we're not statisticians at all right we just use stats in our research so don't trust us on anything we say here <laughs> but we can talk about our experience with p-value right. right our relationship yeah definitely so can you jump on to the uh, sort of the negative negative results in science and p-value can, can can do you know can can contribute to different ways mm -hmm. right i guess negative results is when you don't find something that is new yeah so so just like negative results in science so the connotation of negative is a little different right 
court, nothing is like explanatory. It, you could you could be like, um, okay, because we both work on food. So I'll give you a food example. Would just be like uh, trans fat has a cardiovascular effect on human health. Right. Um, that is a positive result because there's a lot of evidence in support of this hypothesis, and they have data to back it up. But if I say that olive oil also has a cardiovascular disease effect, if I would have this hypothesis, a lot of data would、uh, reject my hypothesis because、uh, it might not have much of an effect. So that made my finding of olive oil has basically no effect on cardiovascular development in human health a negative result.、Mm-hmm. You're, I guess, to a lot of people, it's when you're not really bringing something new to the table, or like it seems like you're not bringing something new to the table, right? Or you're just doing eliminations, right? You're like, okay, this is not, it's not an explanatory factor. And I think negative results、right. in general, it I I feel like they're treated a little bit differently in industry versus academia.、Mm-hmm. For industry, negative results are very important, and I think it's very valuable to a company to know what works and what doesn't, right? Yeah, because that could save、right. you millions of dollars in processing costs or whatnot. So I feel like those results are really. They're kept. Tra- people keep track of them, and it's important. But in academia, where everything kind of falls into the publish or perish mentality, negative results. Like if someone did an experiment and they got negative results, they're not going to publish it. They're not going to share it. Most likely, they're just going to move on their life. They're just going to move on. So it's not c- contributing to the public feel of science, even though it could be an important piece of information. Whereas positive results are. Celebrated, published, accepted to journals and whatnot. So I guess really it depends on what field you're in. But in academia, I think in general, people can agree that negative results kind of just slip under. Well, at least like traditionally. Traditionally,、right? yeah. Because nowadays,、um, Polis One is probably the biggest sort of take-all-in journal.、Mm-hmm. Polis stands for a P L O S. Stands for Public Library of Science. Oh, okay, didn't know that. Baumler published in it. One of our old professors. He did. I did not know that. Good to know. Yeah, the chili pepper one was in、yes. there. We had a professor in undergrad who grew a lot of chili peppers. Okay, shout out Baumler. Yo, Baumler. <laughs> He probably listened to that. Yeah, but moving on to that,、um, I don't know if you've heard in the news recently, but. There was a Cornell food scientist, a food science professor at Cornell named Brian Wensink, who actually had a lot of his papers retracted、mm-hmm. because、um, because they said that he committed academic misconduct. Specifically, they said that he was p hacking. So, do you want to kind of explain what p hacking is? Oh, so p hacking. I put you on the spot there. <laughs> What's that? I put you on the spot there. <laughs> Yeah, it is.、Um, so p hacking is、um, so so like、uh, we discussed earlier.、Uh, p value is re- related to the sort of the confidence interval, and、uh, one of the golden number of p value is zero point oh five, which translates to five percent. So majority of the natural science research still uses this point oh five theory. 
is that、uh, the significant test will only be significant if the p-value is equal or less to 0.05. But this is in a huge debate,、uh, maybe started five or ten years ago. Nowadays, people propose 0.01 or 0.005、mm-hmm. uh, as the new sort of equivalent significant level. Right. Or sort of the confident increase the confidence level and decrease the sort of the risk factor. So since there is a sort of a clear boundary between positive and negative result, p hacking kicks in because you can manipulate your data to increase your chance of getting significant results.、Uh, for example, one of the common way. Of doing it is、um, people can remove some of the values from the data set and、um, to to have more consistent data, less variation. That might create a、um, significant difference in different treatments. Right. So basically, you're playing of your data. You're maybe taking them out, or you stop collecting data once you hit a p value of below zero point zero five. Right. Or you can keep. Uh, you can keep collecting data until you see a significant result.、Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ways to go about it. Hey, we know p we know p hacking pretty well. We should probably p hacking. <laughs> What? <laughs> Did you just encourage us to p hack? Oh no, I was just like because the because the techniques are pretty obvious. I think yeah, it's pretty obvious, and some people might even be doing it. Uncaution- unconsciously, without knowing that. Oh yeah, a lot of people. I, I'd、right. say that. Yes. So I guess going back to that Cornell professor,、uh, basically he works for the food psychology research unit at Cornell, and he was a social science star, right? So his his studies were published in New York Times, Oprah Magazine, whatnot. And then a lot of it is about a lot of what we know or assume to be true about people's behavior around food. Stems from his research, but now they're saying that well, he probably p-hack his way through them. So it kind of really he's that big. He's pretty big. Okay,、uh, I guess Amanda and I are both like chemistry slash biology nerds. Right. right. This is more food psychology more than anything else.、Um, but yeah, he he at, at one point. They actually uncovered an email that he sent to a Turkish scholar that was working with him, and he basically said something along the lines of "dig through the data, just keep reanalyzing it till you find something that's significant." So, in short, they didn't design the study with a hypothesis in mind or with the idea of wanting to find. Without the, they didn't have a hypothesis in mind, right?、Mm-hmm. They didn't have a question they wanted to answer. They basically set up a study, collected a bunch of variables or factors, and then try to see which one was significant. And if you think about it, with a p-value of zero point zero five, if you just collected tons of variables, there's there's a high probability by chance you would see something that's significant, even though it isn't. Right. 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 And so in in here, some some of the assumptions that we're talking about here is that. This professor is doing the designed experiment, so-called. So there's treatment, there's、um, different treatment groups, and you're trying to understand relationships among the treatments. Right, right. And this is sort of different 
from the observational studies of sort of the nature, uh, more of the fundamental studies, where um, there's not too much of a design experiment, but most of the data coming from measurement of, say, environment and using those data to sort of getting models out. Am I making sense here? There's yeah, sort of a yeah. difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Depending on the type of data collected. Right, right, right. Right. So so this happened and what what was the result? Well, so I think I think the Cornell I think Cornell actually found out about this a few years ago. Um and they might have given him a suspension or something. But now it's official and it's blown up and I think he's going to resign sometime this year or next year, if I'm not wrong. Okay. So that's the end of his academic career. And do you think, do, okay, this is a sort of an interesting question. Do you think he can find a job outside of academia? How old is he? How old is he? Yeah. I think he, okay, let's Google it. I mean, he looks to be in about his 50s or 60s. And so he might still have like five to 10 years left. His, he's 58 years old. Okay. I don't know. I feel like. Given his skills, yes, he's probably so employable, but his reputation in food, though, it's, you know. But see, the type of research he does is more social psychology. And if you think about, like, outside of academia, people who would, who would hire, um, who would hire these sort of people, I don't know if he can get a job. Yeah, it's, it's a little different than sort of a chemist did this. Right, they can right. still go back to the lab and come attack if they really don't have any money. They will have job securities. <laughs> Everyone needs to eat. Even after, even after committing p-hacking, <laughs> exposed to p-hacking, you'll still have a job if you know GC. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The thing that kind of stands out to me, besides about p-hacking, is like if you think about how prevalent p-hacking is in the academic industry, like people are. People would do a lot, right, just to get a significant result. Yeah, so I feel like I feel like there's several areas or several data points. Sorry, several data practice is sort of the untouchable area where, say, like increase or decrease of sample size, uh, some of the treatment. Uh, well, I mean, say you can do a lot of data transformations, and there's books to teach you how to do it, right? And that not, that's not considered as a p-hacking. Right. I think like there's a line between exploring your data, which is which is a part of data analysis, right? You're trying to find out more. Yeah, 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 for sure. But it's a it's a thin line. It's a thin line. Like, how do you tell the difference? Like, even I am confused. Well, it's it's very hard, right? And this sort of is a good segue to our next topic. Right. Which is a blog post wrote by uh, Roger Penn, who is a biostatistician from Johns Hopkins University. So he wrote about this divergent and convergent phases of data analysis. Uh, just very briefly, the divergent phase, it's sort of like the exploratory phase where you May just get your data and you start to see the relationships and you try to make some just by plots and to see what's going on with 
uh, different variables. You know, you you really do a lot of things and, and the play with your data phase. Right. And um, we also have a convergent phase where you have to get your focus and trying to narrow down the scope of either to select one method of analyzing your data or to select a question, a core question that you want to answer your 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 um, from your research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you said that the exploratory part is the divergent phase, right? You do a lot of different things. Right. And then for the convergent phase. Yeah. So for the convergent phase, you you really have to narrow down your scope and just focus on one thing and do it. So I guess p-hacking occurs when you're trying to diverging your um, analysis when you're at a convergent phase. I thought you I thought you said p-hacking happens at divergent. You just said it happens at convergent. No, it needs to happen at convergent, right? Did I say divergent? Oh gosh, this is bad. <laughs> yeah, you told me divergent the first time. <laughs> now I'm confused. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, cross out what we said. <laughs> so the quote from Roger's writing okay. is that uh, confusing phase three for phase one is arguably the most common and most dangerous problem that one can encounter in science. So phase one and phase three are phase one is sort of the the blind exploratory phase right Right. you're just trying to get whatever you want from your data and to see if there's a potential for your research question phase three is also a divergent phase to use various model various tools in statistics to answer a very specific question yes so between phase one and three there is a question identification process. Once you have the question. What you really want to study. Exactly, yes. Okay, so this is another Rogers quote. Is if we discover something else interesting in phase three, we cannot pretend like that it was occurred in phase one because that's the recipe for p-hacking. Right, right. You would have to do a whole study over again. Exactly. And... Going back to that Cornell food example, they collected this. They, they actually set up a design and just collected data first without knowing what question they want to answer. But they were just collecting data points to see what interesting um, conclusions they could come out from, you know, their data. So I guess in that sense, they completely bypassed step two. So they did step one, and then they went to step three. And then they did step two, which was actually trying to figure out a question. Right, exactly. Hey, yeah, that, that's a good way. Yeah. I think like the step one, two, three, four, it makes a lot of sense to us because we're looking at a chart right now. <laughs> I don't know how much sense it makes to people listening. So what I would do is uh, we'll have a show note, which is um, basically right. all the um, documents that we're talking in this podcast. We'll, we'll make it available. Roger Pang's golden chart. I, I'll, I'll have these available and that will make a lot more sense for people who are interested in, right. in this to read through. For the two people or one person in the audience who's yeah. <laughs> like, mm, I want to find out more. Thanks, that yep. one person. <laughs> so going going off of that, I guess, I, I really want to touch on like the obsession we have with significant results. 
Uh-huh. And I can see like a huge part of it is the sensationalism of, ooh, like coffee causes hair loss or, you know, um, peanut butter decreases appetite or something like we want to know something for certain and we want something we want something definitive. Right, right, right. Right. As audiences mm-hmm. and as consumers of the media. So that's our part. And then it's it's different from academia, but at the same time, it's also that pressure to have positive results for news outlets and people who publish things. I'm not, I'm not talking about it in an academic sense. I'm talking about it in a general sense that people want to have significant results. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, academic also needs to serve sort of the public interest. Right. Maybe sometimes it's very um, unconsciously, mm-hmm. but it's there. It's definitely there. And I think public perception also has impact on like what kind of studies USDA and FDA and NIH funds, right? Yeah, you have to have a sort of an AIMS page or some kind of objective. Right, right. Like I have friends in biochemistry and cancer research. It's like people will throw money at cancer research because that's what people want to know. Everyone wants to know. So now we're talking shit on cancer research? Well, no, I was just giving you an example. <laughs> Not our area of expertise. But. Right. Just because, you, you know, there's ignore the process. Right. I think as a tendency, we have a, we have a tendency to focus on the final product or the result and sort of ignore the process, right? So whenever there's a new scientific breakthrough, we we see that breakthrough, but we don't really care about the experimental design or the statistical rigorness that goes into, you know, analyzing the data. And I get it. It's a lot. Like, no one has time for that. You know, every time you pick up a newspaper, you're not going to be like, I want to know how they did this exactly. Right. And people think that that's the scientist's job, right? They trust the scientist. Right. And in general, we trust scientists that they will do their job and they will give us that final important piece of information from which we can make decisions and whatnot. But I guess that also brings into question about how we see the final product, but not really the process. Yeah. So sort of my take on this, ignore the process. It's just people sometimes, as you said, it's people would like to know the definitive results of many, many things in our life. Right, right. We want to have certainty. We don't really care how we got there. We just want to know something for sure. Right. And there is a a misunderstanding between what scientists do versus what the public's image or impression of scientists. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not like we're trying to purposely find a connection. We just want to see if there's a connection or not. Like it's supposed to be objective. Exactly. Yes. And what the public sees, it's all the quote unquote positive results, right? The stuff that really means something or have a bigger significance to the world. And that really, well, it kind of bothers people who do science to trying to put up similar stuff, I would say. Right. It's a lot of pressure, I guess. Yeah, right, right, right. Right. Think about it. If you're a PhD student and then you spent two years on a project that didn't give you significant results. That means there's no publication there, even though technically you still contributed to the body of science, but no one really cares or knows, and you have to start over. You have to have something else. 
Hey, but this is one question to you. Right. Do you think a carefully designed experiment resulting in negative results? Do you think the scientist is qualified to be an independent researcher, which is just another name for a PhD student, like PhD grad? Do I think that person is qualified? Right. Yeah. I don't think whether their results were negative or positive is a factor in deciding if they're qualified. Well, personally, I think. What qualifies someone is their ability to properly design, analyze, collect data. You know, but given that that that's how it should be ideally. But I think ultimately, if someone wants someone wants to continue on an academia track, whether they want to, you know, finish their PhD, go on to be a postdoc or a professor or whatnot, that's not enough. So they need to, yeah. So so then that become phase two, right? They have to have the Ability to come up with a question that is answerable and meaningful to the field or to the world. Right. They have to find something that is meaningful, but something that also has a high chance of giving them a positive result. Yeah. Right. Right. Right.、Uh-huh. Right. Really, it's it's not so cut and dry, I guess. Right. So so I see that's that's sort of what I'm thinking because professors sort of a, a, a university researcher their professional career could be up to thirty years or so. So you have you have this thirty years to figure out something, but for a PhD graduate student, you might have four years or three years of active experimenting time.、Mm-hmm. It can get unfortunate, and you can not、right. have positive results from the this given experiment. And given that you're you're still learning as a as a student, you can't really handle many things. At the same time,、right. you're typically just doing one. You're, you're answering a one very specific question, and the chance of failing that is pretty high. Yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not qualified as、mm-hmm. a researcher. Right. Because in general, you have to have publications to graduate as a PhD student. But sort of the university goal is to train independent researchers. Well, see, I agree. Part of that. Um, part of developing students who are in grad school is training them to be good researchers, but I think that's a very nice way to package something else. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, academic institutions care a lot about funding, and funding comes from having. Yeah. So now we're talking about the practical side. Right. The practical side comes from having publishable results, and it's it's really a whole cycle. Right, they they want to train you to be an independent researcher, but they want results. So if you're a great researcher and you're just really unlucky and you pick three projects in a row that doesn't give you any positive result, that、right, you're screwed. <laughs> and I don't think they'll be too happy about that too. Like, you know, ultimately they want things that brings them publicity, brings them funding. So I, while I do agree that training training students to be independent researcher is important, and I think. Academic institutions do consider that it is not the most important thing for them. Right. Yeah, I get that, and and I think I think that to combine our opinions, it will be that you have to be an independent researcher. That's sort of a given, and that can be trained from either negative or positive data from from your studies. And but on top of it, you would also have to at least have some significance in your research. Uh, to contribute a bit more to the big picture, rather than just to your own personal development, to make some contribution to the science in general, or or to whatever field, so you can. 
have your degree awarded. Right. I think like being a good researcher, then if you think about it, it really there's two parts to it. There's the first part, which is your technical skills, your analysis skills, your ability to design a bias-free study. That's one part of it. The other part of it, which is also very important, but perhaps not that talked about, is your ability, like you said, to identify a meaningful question, something that contributes to the body of science, something that people are willing to fund. Right. And it's a very business approach to research, I guess you could say. Yeah. Right. That's true. And that, that's important too. Like you can't just do research. You have to be able to make people care about what you do and make them want to give you money to do more of it. That's definitely yes. Okay, I think we got some meat out of this. Yes, Zhongyi, <laughs> roll meat. Right, right, right. Meat. So I, I guess, I guess that's that's sort of it for this episode. Um, we sort of highlighted p value, some negative results in science, p hacking. And uh, academia, what makes a good researcher? What is a researcher?、Hmm, who knows? So I have a I have a question for you. I think this would be interesting. Okay. So you did undergraduate research too at University of Minnesota, right? Yeah. And having done research in that capacity, and now as a grad student, having done research as a grad student for the past year, how do you think you have developed as an independent researcher? Oh, you know what. It's all the small things. The the sort of the main body of research or doing experiment more or less the same.、Uh, the, the the techniques were very similar. Right. But everything's prepared for you in undergraduate, or、mm-hmm. you don't have to take responsibilities to get the samples here. You don't have to schedule a, a maintenance call with the instrument representative. You don't have to get a specific part. Or your equipment, otherwise you couldn't do your research. So that's sort of a stacking、mm-hmm. on top of what you actually do in lab. Right. So like the day to day grind, like running samples, putting stuff in a GC, like that's pretty standard. So I guess from what you're saying, is the type of ownership you take over your own research. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh huh. Right. And 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 that could I would argue that it would get a, a step beyond once you're a PI. A principal investigator、mm-hmm. would be that you you need to propose it, right? You need to write all those reports, or at least oversees all these reports, progress reports, effort reports, whatever you want to call them, and they need to go through、mm-hmm. external、uh, agencies, right? So you're you're a step above. To to in charge of or to oversee more of the study.、Mm-hmm. So you're not really in the lab actually running stuff. You're trying to coordinate and make sure that you know you're looking for the right projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not you're not a lab tech. <laughs> exactly, and honestly, even for even for a lot of graduate students, right? I I think is more common in microbiology that you get helps、mm-hmm. from undergraduate. A lot of things you don't you don't make your own media, but you do the say you you put things into the sequencer or you generate your own primer.、Mm-hmm. And I agree. For me too, I did undergrad research and now I'm in grad school. And I feel like because of the scale of the project as well, I feel like you're working on a lot of things at once. You have to really spend a lot of time planning things out. Like what you're gonna do first? What's the sequence? How you're gonna do it in the most efficient manner? And 
I feel like there there's a lot of brain power that goes into coordinating and managing your time to make sure that you can get everything done. For me, at least personally, than undergrad, because I felt like in undergrad, I just kind of went into the lab, did what I was supposed to do, and then I left. Right, right, right. You、um, you don't、yeah. take as much of a ownership. You don't take as much of a principal role in determining the course of your research. Right, right, right. Right. Most often than not, you just have a research topic that you might agree on with your advisor in undergrad, and then you work on it. So.、Mm-hmm. Yep. All right.、Um, I guess this is it. Yep. For our episode, I don't know, maybe episode one. We don't even have a name. P value, P hacking, academia, whatever it is. But yeah. Ignore the process. How's that? Ignore the process. Oh yeah, I like it. Okay. Cool. Well, we'll link everything in the description, and、um, hopefully, if you make this far, thanks. Thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs> you gotta cut it.